Um, the politics of public pensions are um, are really problematic, are really um, dysfunctional because of the fact that we don't really have two sides bargaining from opposite sides of, of the table. Having the possibility of a restructuring and bankruptcy changes the way uh, the, the beneficiaries of those pension benefits are likely to look at those negotiations. Hey there, this is Briefly production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Matthew Reed. Public pensions are slowly bankrupting states across the country. Illinois, with an annual budget of about $40 billion, faces a pension shortfall nearly three times larger. And in my home state of California, there are more than $1.5 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities at the state and local levels. With the coronavirus straining state budgets and revenue in unprecedented ways, Dealing with the pension crisis now is more urgent than ever. When you can't repay your debts, you can file for bankruptcy. Cities can, too. Detroit is the most notable example. So why can't states? To examine the promise and pitfalls of state bankruptcy, I'm joined today by David Skeel. Professor Skeel teaches at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. He is a bankruptcy expert and the chairman of the Financial Oversight and Management Board, which the U.S. Congress created to help Puerto Rico restructure its debts. Professor Skeel is a prolific author and for years has advocated for making the bankruptcy code available to the states. So with that, Professor Skeel, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for reaching out and thanks for your patience. I, I, can't, I didn't go back to see when you first sent your email, but it was a while ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, but this, I, this timing actually is good. It's, uh, it's been kind of a crazy, uh, crazy few months and uh, this is a little quieter than. Yeah, crazy few months is right. And hopefully not too many more ahead. So before we get into the nitty gritty here with state bankruptcy, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the next best thing, which would be Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code. And Chapter 9 allows municipalities to file for bankruptcy. And recently, we've seen several cities, including Detroit and Stockton, take advantage of Chapter 9 to restructure their obligations, which have included pension liabilities. Could you explain how Chapter 9 works and how it differs from, say, a large corporate reorganization in Chapter 11 or from an individual bankruptcy? Absolutely. Uh, Chapter 9, in many respects, is quite similar to Chapter 11. It's it's different than personal bankruptcy. Interestingly, in my view, the justifications for it are very similar to the justifications for having a personal bankruptcy system, but the mechanics are much more similar to Chapter 11. So in many respects, a municipal bankruptcy unfolds like a Chapter 11 case. So the debtor negotiates with creditors uh, around the terms of a possible plan in, in municipal bankruptcy. It's called a plan of adjustment rather than a reorganization plan, but they negotiate around the terms of a plan. The debtor has some flexibility of um, how to classify the different groups of creditors. It can't stick people who are unrelated into the same class, but there's some flexibility to, um, to make decisions as to how big a class is, uh, how, um, how narrow a class uh, is. When the debtor reaches a point where it, it thinks it has a potentially confirmable plan, it takes it to the court um, and puts together a disclosure statement, does divide the creditors into different classes, proposes a payout for each of them, then there's a vote. And uh, if um, if the vote, in the best of all possible terms, every class will vote yes. Um, in most municipal bankruptcy cases, as in many Chapter 11 cases, not every class votes yes, but it's still possible to cram down a plan if one or more uh, classes vote no. And if the court thinks it meets the requirements of the bankruptcy code, it's confirmed. So same general process process of negotiate with creditors, decide what you're going to promise to each group of creditors, have a vote, hopefully meet the other requirements of the bankruptcy uh, code, and the plan hopefully is confirmed. 
So those are the similarities. There are some pretty significant differences, and most of them uh, arise from the fact it's a public entity we're dealing with, not a private corporation. So one difference is there are very strict limits on interference with decision-making by the debtor, So um, by the debtor and by the state. So uh, Municipal Bankruptcy Code has a provision that prohibits interference with the state and its oversight of the municipality. It has a provision as well that that, uh, prohibits interference with political or governmental functions of the city. So there there are non-interference provisions. There also is no bankruptcy estate in a municipal bankruptcy case. In in any other bankruptcy case, when the debtor files for bankruptcy, the court takes control in a sense of all of the property. There is an estate that is formed. That's not true in municipal bankruptcy for similar kinds of reasons. And the court also doesn't have the power to veto decisions made by the municipality. So in with a chapter 11 debtor, if the debtor wanted to sell some assets, the court would have to approve that. If a municipality wants to sell some assets, the court does not have the power to, um, to approve or disapprove that. Final key difference between the two is that municipalities can't be liquidated. Uh, The prospect of a liquidation very frequently puts pressure on the parties in Chapter 11 to reorganize. That tool, that stick, is not there um, in municipalities. So it is a uh, with a municipality. So it is, in a sense, a more consensual process. Got it. So, uh, but I guess one question that would follow from that is if it's a more consensual process and you don't have the liquidation possibility hanging in the background, how does the bankruptcy court move things along? It's tough from the perspective of if creditors are trying to put pressure on the municipality, though the municipality has things it can do. But in terms of um, putting pressure on the municipality to move more quickly, for instance, it's very difficult in municipal bankruptcy because in municipal bankruptcy, we don't have that liquidation option. Another thing that we don't have in municipal bankruptcy is the the court doesn't have the ability to terminate the, the exclusive right that the debtor has to file a plan. In a Chapter 11 case, if the debtor is dawdling um, with the case, the creditors can file a motion asking the court to end exclusivity and the debtor's exclusive right to file a plan. You don't have that in municipal bankruptcy. So from creditors' perspective, it's tough to prod the municipality uh, along. There, There are a couple of things that help. One is just general politics. A municipality does not want to be in bankruptcy forever, so they have their own incentives to get out of um, out of bankruptcy. The other, the nuclear threat, is if the if the municipality is just sitting around, not making any effort to restructuring it uh, to restructure its debts, the court can throw the case out. So the court could dismiss the case, and so that is that's a little bit of a stick as well. But there, there, the sticks are not as sharp in municipal bankruptcy as they are in Chapter 11. Great. That's all useful background for us as we move into talking about states. So in April, shortly after the coronavirus pandemic began in the United States, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell suggested that states should be able to file for bankruptcy to help address their financial challenges. Yeah, I I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy uh, uh, route. It saved some cities, and there's no good reason for it not to be available. So bracketing for now the question whether states can even file for bankruptcy under the current bankruptcy code, what would state bankruptcy look like, and what do you see as the advantages of allowing states to restructure their debts? Sure. So um, what what state bankruptcy would look like, in my view, is it would look a lot like municipal bankruptcy. So the way municipal bankruptcy, the way the uh, municipal bankruptcy framework, Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code looks, is it starts out with the provision that incorporates lots of other bankruptcy provisions. So most of municipal bankruptcy is just pulled from elsewhere in the bankruptcy code, in particular from Chapter 11. 
I would envision uh, state bankruptcy being very similar, um, pulling lots of provisions from elsewhere in the bankruptcy code, probably most of the same provisions as uh, as municipal bankruptcy does, plus a handful of state um, specific um, provisions. And apropos of that, there, there have been uh, discussions in Washington over the last decade about possibly um, proposing a state bankruptcy framework. Very frequently, the state bankruptcy frameworks that would be proposed are a start out in just the way I described. They just take chapter nine, take the provision in chapter nine that incorporates lots of the rest of the bankruptcy code and marks that up. You might, there are a few things that wouldn't apply to state bankruptcy. Um, but everything else you uh, you just pull in. So it would be be very simple to do. Municipal bankruptcy, I think, has 20 provisions total. Um, state bankruptcy, in my view, wouldn't need um, wouldn't need any um, any more. What would the advantages of it be? Um, well, as a, a state bankruptcy advocate, one reporter a few months ago called me an evangelist for state um, bankruptcy. I'm not, not sure if that's what I'd want on my obituary, but um, but I certainly <laughs> am a, um, a, a promoter of the idea of state bankruptcy. I think there are a number of, um, of advantages or, or things that a state bankruptcy uh, framework could do. One is, and, and this is one that, that people tend not to, to think about, is it would ensure a, a more equitable distribution of the sacrifice. Um, and this is an idea that I borrowed from Elizabeth Warren back in her bankruptcy law professor days. I'm not sure she would want to um, want me to be borrowing it. But the basic idea is you really need to consider what the world looks like for a a state that's in terrible financial trouble in bankruptcy or with bankruptcy, as opposed to not having a bankruptcy option. There's a tendency to just imagine a happy state as one comparison, and the other is what would happen if you had bankruptcy. But that's not the relevant comparison. The relevant comparison is a state that's in big trouble, such as Illinois, um, that doesn't have a bankruptcy option as opposed to one that does. A benefit of bankruptcy is that everybody bears some of the sacrifice. Uh, the public employee um, unions or the, the public employees would have to bear some of the sacrifice. The bondholders would have to bear some of the sacrifice. Uh, services might be um, affected in some respects. Whereas without a bankruptcy option, what ends up happening is one or two constituencies end up bearing the brunt of the financial distress. And the two constituencies that tend to be hit the most are service beneficiaries, people that depend on state services because they get cut. If you look at Illinois' budgets over the last 10 or 15 years, you see those service cuts um, to uh, all kinds of different um, services. Uh, and the other constituency that tends to be hit is uh, is public employee um, unions. So, um, so more equitable distribution of the sacrifice. I'll mention four more much more uh, quickly. One is that this is one of the few areas where I believe uh, uh, that that bankruptcy law can actually improve politics. Um, one of the problems with the the pension. Um, shortfall in many states um, is that there's a, a perverse bargaining dynamic where um, the employees who benefit from those pensions are um, are the folks who vote for the politicians who decide what kind of a pension to provide. And so in a sense, they're both on the same side of the bargaining table. Um, and there's an incentive to make unrealistic promises. If you had the possibility of bankruptcy, pension beneficiaries would know that uh, that there's a risk to uh, to receiving unrealistic promises. There's a risk to not insisting that the pensions are public, um, uh, are properly funded. Third benefit of bankruptcy is that it provides clearer priorities uh, as to who gets what than you have outside of bankruptcy. Outside of bankruptcy, it's really difficult to determine who comes first and any 
uh, a parrot order in the state constitution, for instance, can very easily be uh, undermined simply by the state making decisions as to who to pay and who not to pay. So there's a, a clearer uh, priority um, uh, structure. Fourth benefit of bankruptcy is some things simply can't be restructured out of bankruptcy and, and bankruptcy makes it possible to restructure them. The most obvious example is pensions. Um, in Illinois, not to pick on uh, the state where your law school is, but it is the worst off state at the, um, at the moment. In Illinois, it is impossible to touch existing pension benefits, um, or I should, should say pen pension benefits for existing employees. Even future benefits for current employees cannot be adjusted. There's just no way to adjust pensions at all. That would all give way in bankruptcy and, and to the extent the pensions aren't funded, the unfunded portion of pensions could be um, could be restructured um, and has to some extent been restructured in municipal bankruptcy cases. Final benefit of bankruptcy is uh, I think of it as the best catastrophe option. If you think of what are your options if a state is in such bad financial distress that they simply can't meet their obligations, the three obvious options are one is a federal bailout. You know, the, the Fed, federal government steps in and uh, helps the state. Um, second is that the state simply defaults. There's simply a massive default on its obligations. And the third is bankruptcy. And it seems to me that bankruptcy is a much superior option to the two other alternatives. Uh, bailouts um, might seem like the right thing to do uh, if there's no other choice, but they create terrible incentives. They create uh, incentives for states to, um, to overspend. A massive default would just be a, a nightmare. Bankruptcy is not much fun, but in my view, it's it's much superior to either of those possibilities. So I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for a state bankruptcy framework. Not perfect, but I, I think it, it would improve the world in a number of ways. So are there any alternatives? I mean, are there pathways available under current law for states to address their mounting debts and restructure them in some way? Or are they just out of luck without a state bankruptcy system? Their, their options for restructuring their obligations are, are quite limited. Um, they have options for trying to pay their, their, um, their obligations. They can uh, raise taxes to the extent there's scope to do that. They can, reduce, um, they can reduce spending. But in terms of restructuring them, if the obligations meet, uh, reach a point where they, they simply cannot be paid in full, there aren't lots of options. One thing that a state can do is some of them can be renegotiated. So uh, 10 years ago, which is the last time we had a crisis somewhat like the current crisis, some states renegotiated their collective bargaining agreements a bit. So one, one thing you can do is renegotiate uh, some of your obligations. Um, with bonds, uh, you could do a similar thing by uh, taking a page from countries' playbook. Um, when countries are in financial distress, they'll often do bond exchanges where they will offer a new reduced bond for the old bond, and they'll usually have some sort of stick. Um, they'll, they'll implicitly threaten to do something to the old bond, such as not pay them. Is what Argentina did uh, a couple of dec uh, decades ago in order to encourage bondholders to um, to agree to this exchange. So um, certainly in in uh, in the 20th and 21st century, I don't think a state has ever done that, but um, but it, it is done in the sovereign space, and it, it could at least in theory um, be done. Um, now the thing you can do is you can just default, as I was talking about um, a minute ago. You you can simply stop paying some of your obligations, and it, it turns out 
to be pretty difficult to collect against a state. So if a state decided to um, to default, uh, it would keep creditors at bay likely, likely for a while. But none of those alternatives is particularly attractive. And the scope of anything other than a, a flat out dis, uh, default is likely to be limited because the folks you're negotiating with know that they have a strong hand. They know that the state cannot easily restructure its obligations. So, so far, we've assumed that Chapter 9 doesn't allow states to file for bankruptcy. And that seems to be the conventional wisdom. After all, Chapter 9 is titled Adjustment of Debts of a Municipality. And Section 10140 of the Code defines municipality as, quote, a political subdivision or public agency or instrumentality of a state, unquote. Conspicuously absent from that definition, of course, are states themselves. But is there any textual case for permitting states to avail themselves of Chapter 9 reorganization procedures? And if not, are there ways for states to use Chapter 9 to relieve their debt pressures without entering bankruptcy themselves? I guess my question is, what would stop a state from creating an agency to assume all the state's public pension debt and enter bankruptcy alone, given how the code defines municipality? In my view, and I'm, I'm going to repeat some of what you said because I I agree with um, with your analysis. If, if the question is, can a state file under Chapter Nine? I think the answer is simply no. I don't think there's any textual case for it. And and the definition of municipality that you read to me is um, is pretty cut and dried. A municipality is a political subdivision or public agency or instrumentality of a state, all of which seem to me to suggest it is a subset of a state. And certainly the legislative history is completely consistent with that. Back in the 1930s, when um, when municipal bankruptcy was challenged, so not state bankruptcy, but municipal bankruptcy was challenged constitutionally. Um, Justice Cardozo, who was initially in the dissent in a case that struck down municipal bankruptcy, said, there's nothing to worry about here. A state could never file under uh, under the municipal bankruptcy law. It was true then. In my view, it is, is true now. But that doesn't preclude clever uses of of, or, or clever uses of uh, Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy of the sort you were describing. This is something that um, Vince Bucola, a very good young scholar, um, wrote about a few years ago. He, he also has a terrific paper that y'all ran uh, in the University of Chicago Law Review a year ago. Um, it's a different one where he makes the point that I'm about to, um, to make, which is the point you made, and that is, I think in theory, you could set up a state entity whose obligations could be restructurable. So what Vince proposes is set up an agency that issues debt for the state, issues the bond for the state, the bonds for the state. That agency would be um, a public agency of the state. And I think it could file um, for bankruptcy under Chapter 9, under a literal reading of the um, of the definition of the municipality. One, well, two caveats on that. One is if a state were to do that, uh, to set up an agency for the purpose of issuing its debt, I think it would send some, um, uh, it would be taken as a bit of a red flag, sending a, a kind of signal the state doesn't want to send. Usually, when you carve things off and set up a separate entity to issue them, you do that to make them more protected, not not more restructurable. So Chicago, um, I think, has recently issued sales tax bonds where they 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 hive off the sales tax. Puerto Rico did that as well a number of years ago, and the idea is to make it more protected, not less protected. Um, so there'd be a little bit of a red flag, but but you could do it. The other issue, I think, is that you'd run into problems to the extent you were trying to do that with existing debt. So if, if you tried to transfer existing debt to some um, new agency, I think you'd run into some constitutional problems. I think you'd run into a takings clause argument 
that you're undermining the ability for the creditors to get repaid. If there was legislation involved, if there was a state legislative act that created some agency that, say, took on the pension debt or took on um, other kinds of existing debt, it would likely violate the contracts clause of, of Article One, which says that states cannot enact laws impairing obligations of contracts. So to the extent there's legislation involved, there's also a contracts clause um, concern. So I think you could do this creative kind of strategy. Um, some downsides to it, the, the chief legal downside is it would only work going forward, I think. I don't think it would work for existing obligations. That is a perfect segue to talking about some of the constitutional barriers to state bankruptcy. Um, so let's talk first about some of the federal barriers. Some scholars have argued that federal bankruptcy for states would violate state sovereignty. Um, the U.S. Constitution's Contracts Clause prohibits states from passing laws that impair the obligation of contracts, as you've said. But in some sense, impairing contracts is exactly what bankruptcy does. And on top of all that, there might also be takings clause problems. Do you think a federal bankruptcy regime for the states could overcome these federal constitutional difficulties? I should probably start off by saying that uh, that I'm not a constitutional law, law scholar. I'm not a, a constitutional law expert, although I do play one on podcasts um, and I play play one occasionally uh, uh, before my uh, in my classes and also occasionally in law review articles because these issues come up so much in um, in this context. But my view um, as a non-constitutional law person, but somebody who's uh, been reading about this and thinking about it and writing about it for a while now is that it would be constitutional. Um, we've gone down this road before with municipal bankruptcy, as I alluded to earlier, back in the 1930s. The first municipal bankruptcy law uh, in uh, was struck down in 1936 on precisely the grounds you just referred to. It was struck down as a violation of state sovereignty um, to allow a municipality to file for bankruptcy, even though the state would have the power to consent or not consent. The Supreme Court said that violated state sovereignty. It was too much of an interference with state decision-making. The Supreme Court also said it violated the contracts clause. And the idea there was that although the, the federal government was creating the bankruptcy framework, not the state, and the contracts clause applies to the states, not to Congress, what the Supreme Court said was Congress was essentially aiding and abetting a violation by the state of the, the contracts clause. So in 1936, the Supreme Court strikes down municipal bankruptcy. Two years later, in 1938, after Congress passed a new municipal bankruptcy law that differed very little from the earlier municipal bankruptcy law, the Supreme Court changed its mind um, and it upheld uh, municipal bankruptcy in a case called Beacons. Um, this case, footnote on this, not that relevant, well, not completely relevant to what we're talking about, but it's a classic illustration of the famous switch in time where the Supreme Court went from um, striking down New Deal legislation to upholding New Deal legislation in 1937, which was after the first case, before the second case. There's a big debate among constitutional historians about whether there really was a switch in time. Kind of hard to uh, explain Beacons, the municipal bankruptcy case that upheld municipal bankruptcy in any other way. Um, so um, decades ago, the Supreme Court upheld municipal bankruptcy, said it's not an interference with state sovereignty as long as the state has control over whether its municipalities file for bankruptcy. What the, um, what the Supreme Court said, and this is a quote from the majority opinion, is the state acts in aid of, not in aid, not in derogation of its sovereign powers when it uses, when it allows its municipal uh, municipalities to use municipal bankruptcy. The idea being this expands the power of the state. It doesn't shrink the power of the state, so it doesn't violate 
violate state sovereignty. The Supreme Court also said didn't violate the, the contracts clause because it's Congress that was putting this in place, not, not the state. That's been in place for decades now. Um, it's not completely certain it would be upheld if it were to be challenged again today, but I think it probably would. So that's one very big piece of evidence that a state bankruptcy law would also be constitutional because the arguments against it are essentially the same as the arguments against municipal bankruptcy. The one potential difference um, is that the Supreme Court sometimes treats municipalities differently and with less as having less sovereignty than states. So it is possible that even though municipal bankruptcy is okay, state bankruptcy would not. Um, the constitutional law scholar, Stanford law professor Michael McConnell has mused about this and written about this. And he, he, he concludes that there are some real issues with state bankruptcy. Although at the end of the day, he suggests that the, the Supreme Court might well uphold it. Um, uh, I'm less of a constitutional law scholar than Michael is, much less of a constitutional law scholar, but I am more confident that they would uphold it. I think it's um, quite likely uh, state bankruptcy would be upheld in the 10th Amendment context. Uh, my impression is that the Supreme Court has tended to treat states and cities, states and municipalities very similarly. And so I think the state sovereignty argument would likely play out the same way or yeah, would play out the same way. Um, so I, I do think state bankruptcy would be constitutional, although it is an issue. You can be sure it would be challenged if one were put in place. So let's say we're good on the federal constitution side. What about state constitutions? Um, in particular, state constitutions that purport to privilege certain debt obligations. I'm thinking in particular of Illinois' constitution, which says that pension obligations, quote, shall not be diminished or impaired, unquote. How do you think federal judges managing a state bankruptcy should address provisions like this? In a state bankruptcy regime, do you think that they'd be able to just override them? I think it depends to some extent on what the particular protection is and the form that it um, that it takes. The one pe the one people talk about the most is the one you referred to, and that is the protections in many state constitutions for pensions. So, um, Illinois Constitution says. Uh, pension and other benefit obligations cannot be impaired um, in any way. The Michigan Constitution was slightly narrower. It said accrued pension benefits cannot be our contractual obligations, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, our contractual obligations that cannot be um, impaired. Um, one thing to note about, it's really the more the Michigan provision than the Illinois provision, but the Michigan provision, in my view, wasn't really designed to apply in a bankruptcy kind of situation. All it was really designed to do was make it clear that a pension obligation is a real obligation. And the reason that needed to be made clear is, is the black letter law with pension promises is that by themselves, they are just promises to make gifts. They do not have um, any binding um, effect on the municipality or state unless the state contractually commits to them. And so the Michigan provision, it seemed very clear to me, was just designed to say this is a contractual obligation. This is something the state um, can't change its mind on later, but wasn't really addressing the issue of what happens if the state is in distress, um, what happens with this contractual obligation. Illinois, uh, it, it was clear, or it is clear, that that really was designed to protect pensions. And as it's been interpreted by the Illinois Supreme Court, um, the Illinois Supreme Court has doubled down on that, as we were talking about earlier, and essentially said, you cannot 
mess with pension obligations, either existing or yet to be earned by current employees in any in any way. Short answer to what happens with that in bankruptcy, in my view, is it's overridden by the supremacy clause. Um, so um, people tend to think, oh, if it's in the Constitution, in the state constitution, surely bankruptcy can't alter that. But even a state constitutional obligation is a state obligation. And uh, supremacy clause says that uh, federal legislation um, trumps um, over um, over a conflicting um, state law. And so I think that is is quite straightforward. That is the conclusion that the court reached in the Detroit municipal bankruptcy. It said constitutional provision is overridden by the bankruptcy code. The pensions can be restructured. Uh, The bankruptcy court in the Stockton, California case said essentially the same thing um, about pensions. They can be the unfunded portion of pensions can be restructured in bankruptcy. The one little um, twist is that the Detroit bankruptcy judge went on to say that we we should take that obligation seriously. We should take the fact that the Michigan um, Constitution seems to see pensions as special, and we can take that into account in on the margins in um, in other places, and in particular when the court was deciding whether it was okay to treat pensions more gener- uh, more generously than other types of obligations of the state. The uh, the Detroit court went back to that constitutional provision and says said that's a reason to treat pensions a little bit more generously. I personally. Uh, am a little skeptical of that interpretation. I mean, my own interpretation would be supremacy clause. Uh, these pension protections in constitutions are are overridden in bankruptcy. Other kinds of state provisions, it, it might be possible that they would be upheld. Certainly a state provision that gave a lien on particular assets to um, to a group of creditors, that would be protected and would be honored in um, in bankruptcy. But a uh, a provision that says uh, obligations to pay pensions can't be altered uh, is overridden by the bankruptcy code. Hmm. Um, this makes me think of something that we read in bankruptcy in the Chapter 11 context, uh, Franchise Services, a Fifth Circuit case. And it was about whether a shareholder who happened to be a creditor could exert a preferred right to block a corporation's bankruptcy filing in Chapter 11. And this all just makes me think about the political possibilities in a state bankruptcy context of perhaps a powerful pension fund getting a blocking right over a bankruptcy or something along those lines. I I don't know if that's really a question. It's just a thought that came to my mind, but it's kind of interesting. It's actually a real issue, um, and I, I was trying to elide it a little bit uh, because it's a it's a very messy issue. And the, um, the I think I think pension the pension provisions are actually a, a kind of easy case. I think there are harder cases, and the general question is. Can a state put priorities in place? So, so can it say that um, that uh, California, for instance, says educational education related obligations have to be paid first? Um, and I think the California Constitution may have some sort of bondholder um, protection as well. Um, could you put a provision in play, or or to to twist it a little bit, but raise the same issue? Could a state say municipalities can file for bankruptcy, but only if pensions get at least 80 cents on the dollar or or pensions aren't restructured or or bonds get 80 cents on the dollar or um, um, aren't restructured? And that's a really tricky question. And I think it raises exactly that same issue, your shareholder creditor issue, where when the state is putting these provisions in place, it um, it appears to have somewhat perverse incentives. So that it's 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 playing a game with the bankruptcy 
um, with the bankruptcy system. So far, attempts to do that have mostly been struck down. The Stockton Bankruptcy Court um, waved away some provisions in the California Constitution um, related to pensions that um, that Calpers, the, the pension entity in, in California, pointed to. In one of the other California cases, uh, it may have been Vallejo, it may have been Orange County, I can't remember, that issue came up again. It's, it's not gone. That issue is still there. And I think it is quite likely we will see states, more states trying to do things like that. And the place I would expect to see it would be in their authorization to file for bankruptcy. You know, can you condition the ability of the municipal municipality to file for bankruptcy on um on some sort of treatment of of some kinds of of creditors. So let's shift gears just a touch now and talk about the benefits, consequences, and effects of state bankruptcy. So let's say Congress takes all your advice, it adds to Chapter 9 to permit states to file for bankruptcy, and the courts universally deem this expansion constitutional, both as a state constitutional matter and as a federal constitutional matter. What comes next? So You wrote a great article for the University of Chicago Law Review uh, plug in 2012 called States of Bankruptcy. And there you argued that allowing states to restructure their obligations would have a quote unquote shadow effect um, such that, quote, a bankruptcy law could prove beneficial even if it is never used, unquote. Could you discuss some of those shadow effects and why they would happen? Yeah, and I'll I'll preface my remarks on that by saying that I really think the shadow effects might be the most important or one of the most important benefits of a of a state bankruptcy regime. When people think about state bankruptcy, they often think that if, if state bankruptcy were put in place, a whole bunch of states would immediately file for bankruptcy. And I don't think that's true at all. I don't think any state wants to file for bankruptcy. In fact, when Mitch McConnell mentioned uh, those two words, state bankruptcy, back in April, Andrew Cuomo in, in uh, New York said, you know, we would never in a million years file for bankruptcy, even if there were a state bankruptcy option. So it's important to, to keep in mind that having that option doesn't mean that anybody will ever use it or or that anybody will will use it soon. Even if that's the case, there's some, some, in my view, major benefits of having um, bankruptcy in place. One is that it would potentially facilitate out of bankruptcy restructuring. So if there, if a, a group of creditors that knows there's a bankruptcy option, if things continue to spiral downward, um, if they're negotiating with the state, they're going to negotiate a little bit differently than if there's not a bankruptcy option. And I, they may be more willing to um, to make a deal to to restructure so that bankruptcy is unnecessary. The other big shadow benefit, in my view, is is the one I referred to earlier, and that is um, the politics of public pensions are um, are really problematic, are really um, dysfunctional because of the fact that we don't really have two sides bargaining from opposite sides of, of the table. Having the possibility of a restructuring and bankruptcy changes the way uh, the the beneficiaries of those pension benefits are likely to look at those negotiations. They're not going to just assume any promise that's made is going to be kept, and, and we don't have to worry about whether it's sustainable. We don't have to worry about whether, for instance, to use a, a, a an example other than Illinois, we don't have to worry about the fact that Ill, that New Jersey. Jersey, every time it has trouble in its budget, right, raids from its pension funding, cuts back on its pension funding. Um, under current law, pension beneficiaries might, might not worry about that so much. They'll figure that at the end of the day, the state is going to somehow figure out how to pay these benefits down the road. If there's the possibility of bankruptcy, you got to think about that more seriously. You have to ask the question, um, are these promises sustainable? 
And maybe more importantly, is it actually being funded? Um, so once the state has made the promise, are they in fact setting aside the funds they need to be setting aside um, to pay future um, pension benefits? So I, I think the shadow benefits of state bankruptcy are, are quite significant. So you just touched on some of the various constituencies that we encounter when we talk about state bankruptcy. We know who pensioners are. We know who the major political players are. But what about the bondholders? Um, it's sort of a nameless and faceless group. Who who are the folks that hold these state bonds? And should we, should we worry about the consequences of wiping them out or otherwise haircutting them in a, in a state bankruptcy proceeding? Well, the, uh, and this is a very important point because uh, the, the creditors of a state uh, or the bondholders of a state are very different than the bondholders of a, a country or uh, the bondholders of a corporation. So um, 10 years ago, when Greece was first in significant financial distress, question who were their bondholders? And the answer was that some of their key bondholders were systemically important banks in France and Germany in particular. And so there was a real fear that unless those bonds were paid off, there could be devastating contagion effects that um, systemically important banks could be in trouble in in France and and Germany in particular. The bondholders of a state look very different. The, The principal bondholders of a state are individual or ultimately individuals, although it's often municipal bond funds, the biggest bondholders tend to be bond funds, but the ultimate beneficiaries tend to be individuals who benefit from the tax exemption, um, from the fact that state bonds are tax exempt. If you, so with, if you had California bonds, if you live in California, your bonds are exempt from California um, taxes. What that means in practice is that bondholders tend to be relatively wealthy individuals at the end of the day, funds and relatively wealthy um, wealthy individuals. Um, that doesn't mean that they can just be wiped out. I think they, um, they need to be treated fairly in bankruptcy, just like other cre- uh, creditors need to be um, treated fairly in bankruptcy. And uh, that's not all bondholders. There are uh, other bondholders, they're bank and insurance companies own some state bonds, but the the primary bondholders are um, relatively wealthy individuals, people who benefit from the tax-exempt status of of the bonds. So at this point, I want to shift gears to political prognostication. Um, So we're closing in on a year since the first coronavirus shutdowns took place, and states have spent billions of dollars weathering the pandemic and are losing critical tax revenue due to the economic slowdown that the pandemic has caused. And so we have this background of broadening financial distress. What do you think are the chances that Congress creates a bankruptcy framework for the states in the next couple of years, given the environment that we're in right now? Being candid uh, uh, about prospects for my uh, something that that I think is a is a really good idea. Uh, It is always an uphill climb. Uh, The odds are always against it. And uh, the reason the odds are always against it is it's uh, state bankruptcy is one of those rare things that Republicans and Democrats agree on. um, And neither of them like it um, uh, on the whole or historically have liked it. Democrats don't like it because they're afraid it's a way to whack public employee unions. It's just a a way to to restructure collective bargaining agreements, restructure pensions. It's terrible for public employee unions. Republicans or many Republicans don't like it because uh, they listen to the bond markets and the bond markets say, oh, it would be terrible if we had a state bankruptcy um, regime. The bond market would collapse. Now, 
I think both of these objections are mistaken. Um, I was talking earlier from the, uh, the, the point about um, who would be hurt by state bankruptcy. As I was talking earlier, I, I think state bankruptcy actually would ensure a more equitable distribution of sacrifice if state bankruptcy were ever used. I think the bond market objection is, um, is dubious as well. Um, it assumes that uh, bond markets can't distinguish between good risks and bad risks, um, that somehow even good states will be hurt if a state bankruptcy option is put in place. The municipal bond markets are not perfectly efficient by a, by a long shot, but they can tell the difference between Illinois and, and Utah. And in fact, last summer they did. Illinois was able to get a loan only because there was a Fed program in place and it paid about 5% over um, 500 basis points, uh, 5% over the risk-free rate. Um, Utah also issued debt, uh, which was basically at the risk-free rate or very close to the, um, the risk-free um, rate. So I think those objections are, are, um, are not good objections, um, but they're there. And, uh, and so I think it's always an uphill climb if there were to be a state, a movement for a state bankruptcy um, law, what would it look like uh, in the near term? So my, my uh, wish list uh, or a hope to the extent I think there's any hope of it getting passed would be that it, uh, a state bankruptcy law would be put in place perhaps as part of a deal that also included more aid, more pandemic aid to states and localities. That's one of the big issues that's still on the table um, is more aid to states and localities uh, to help fill in the hole in their budgets uh, because of the pandemic. And my view um, is that states shouldn't be bailed out for pre-pandemic irresponsibility. So Illinois' unfunded pensions shouldn't be bailed out. But states ought to be helped for to the extent that the economic shutdown hurt their revenues and increased and the virus increased their um, expenses. So if there were to be a state bankruptcy law in the near term, that's the way I would imagine it as part of a, a grand deal that perhaps gave some money to states and localities in return or, or as part of a package that also included a state bankruptcy option for um, in the event that some states are uh, just too far gone uh, so that in the future they might not need to think about filing for bankruptcy. But at the end of the day, I'm going to keep my day job. I'm going to continue teaching and writing. I'm not going to go to Washington uh, uh, saying uh, that uh, state bankruptcy is just around the corner and I'll set up my consulting business involving state bankruptcy. I'm going to keep teaching and writing. <laughs> well, that's a nice note to end on. So thank you so much, Professor Skeel, for joining us today. That is all the time we have, unfortunately. But we'll be back soon enough. This has been Briefly, a podcast of the University of Chicago Law Review. You can follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Basically everywhere. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.